You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, but the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Thank you for joining us for this very special episode. We finally made it to number 100. Over our 99 previous shows, we've talked for a cumulative 56 hours, 47 minutes, and 46 seconds, and we've brought on 71 different guests. Before we get started, I just want to make some acknowledgments to some people who have helped us make this all possible. First of all is the man you hear at the top of every single show, Jonathan Santiago. We want to thank him so much for helping us produce that intro and lending his deep, sultry voice to our show. Secondly is my sister, Pamela Chen, for creating our likenesses that we use for all of our graphics on the show. And lastly, I want to thank all the listeners. Whether you've tuned in for 99 previous shows or if it's your first time joining us, and give a special shout out to those who've interacted with us on social media and those who've reviewed us for Apple Podcasts. It's been a really fun ride. So I want to just go back and give a little bit more background on the genesis of the podcast, how and why we got started. And I won't go into every single detail. We have a long show ahead of us. But basically, my entry into journalism and just my career route in general has been from my perspective, really unique and non-traditional. As an undergrad at UC Davis, I did sports talk radio and announcing of sporting events. I also had an independent podcast that I co-hosted with the aforementioned Jonathan Santiago. But as an undergrad, I wasn't able to major in journalism. UC Davis didn't have that major at that point. And so... I went to graduate school to get a formal education in journalism to learn the craft that way. And coming out of graduate school in 2013, I felt confident in the skills that I developed, including audio editing, interviewing and research skills, just really all that stuff. And in the summer of 2015, I felt like I could really do more drawing from that formal training and from the previous podcast experience, I had a a broad vision of what this would be. And I asked Lauren and Joshua, Lauren, a good friend, Joshua, a good friend and brother. And they were important pieces to this. I I thought that they could be very good with me. I definitely would not have done it if they weren't on board. They hold me accountable. They're really important to this whole project. I didn't know exactly what it would become, but I wanted it to be a guest-centric show. I wanted us to do a lot of research and really dig into all these stories and current events for the teams, but essentially then get out of the way and let the guests talk because they're the ones in the locker room with those players or watching every single game in person or on TV. So we lean on that expertise and... That was basically my vision for the show. 
Joshua, so far, what's been your favorite part of this endeavor? I love hearing perspectives from journalists covering the entire league. The roster of the guests we've had is amazing. And um, the diversity among those guests, too. So it's been great having so many unique people on and hearing their their takes on, on the teams they cover and the league in general. Yeah, I completely agree. And also a big part of this was I've been a huge fan of Twitter for a long time. And it's really allowed me to engage with like-minded journalists and find really interesting feature stories or, or other types of articles, talk with the writers, figure out w- what they were thinking behind those stories and stuff. And speaking of that, a lot of our guests I've met on Twitter or social media, and then I- I've built some type of relationship with them and asked them to be on the show. Other times, there have been people that I was already friends with in the past same with Lauren and Joshua that we've been able to bring on that way. And so we've gotten our guests in very different ways, but for the most part, it's allowed us to stay more engaged, stay better in touch with them and just participate in the conversation. That I think has been a really huge element. Some people we've had multiple times, some people just once, but every single guest has made his or her mark on the show and that's why we're doing this special episode yeah like aaron i've been involved with the basketball internet community for almost a decade now but for a lot of these guests it was my first opportunity to actually hear their voice and talk to them one-on-one so i really appreciated being able to build that relationship with some of these people whom i've read and i've known of for such a long time but never really got a chance to directly interact with yeah i can definitely identify and to be completely honest networking played some role in the motivation for starting the project but a lot of it was much more to participate more heavily in the nba conversation and i alluded to friends that i had before the show people like james ham whom i worked with at cowbell kingdom over the years at espn true hoops sacramento king's website uh, Jonathan Santiago, who did the intro, he's been a friend for a long time. Eric Haskelton is a fellow KDVS radio alum where I did radio in college. I met Isaac Lohenkron at a, a USC Annenberg event. It's just been really cool to participate in such an active way with this. And we don't have any plans of stopping anytime soon. I did want to also point out the consistency aspect of it in my talk with lang whitaker for this episode we talked about how that's the toughest part just putting forth that effort every week to produce one or multiple shows put in the time do the research do the legwork to get people to nail down a time that they're able to participate it's challenging but as i said before having co-hosts that are passionate about it and also put in the work makes me not want to give up as exciting as it is it can be easy to to just want to stop and do something that's easier and i'm proud that we've resisted that temptation so far when i look back at all we've done i feel really proud of it it's just so cool to me what we've produced and it's very difficult of course to remember every single episode And 
significant things from all of them. But when I take a moment, sit back and think about various guests and various shows, there's usually one or a handful of memories that comes up from a lot of them. Where I was when when I recorded it and there have been a lot of different locations or what was going on behind the scenes before or after the interview, if the guest was a little rushed with timing, what we were talking about before and after the show, if like with Yovan Buha, there were really loud trains in the background that we were contending with. And so all these little memories add a lot to the experience and make it that much more powerful and valuable for me. We want to sincerely thank all 71 guests for everything they've done so far. And we'll be using this special episode to highlight these contributions. One particular guest whose assistance can't be overstated is Alex Kennedy. He was the very first person we interviewed on here nearly two full years ago. When I asked him to be on that episode, we had nothing concrete for him to listen to, given that no other shows had previously been recorded. Now, with Hoops Hype, Alex continues to do excellent deadline and feature reporting on the NBA at large. He also just launched his very own show in June called the Hoops Hype Podcast. Alex wanted to be on this landmark episode. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to make it, but we do have nine of our favorite guests making an appearance. Special thanks to Alex and all our early guests for coming on before we were really able to establish ourselves with this project. Here's a quick clip from the beginning of the debut episode. Welcome into our very first episode. This is Aaron Fishman, and to help us celebrate this inaugural episode, we have Alex Kennedy coming on the show, managing editor for Basketball Insiders, and he's been covering the NBA for the last decade. Just a terrific reporter. Little known fact about Alex, when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won their first and only Super Bowl, he wept tears of joy and then set off fireworks. Let's start the show. Alex, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'll speak for myself, although I know my co-host will agree, but I'm really excited to have you on, especially as the first guest. I know you've been doing this for a long time and we'll have tons of insight to share for us. Yeah, I mean, anytime you guys want me to jump on, I'd, I'd uh, be happy to do it. Uh, always fun talking hoops with you guys. I'm glad the season's finally here, you know, talking off season moves is always fun but now that we actually have some basketball to break down it's pretty cool and uh i think we're all ready and we've we've waited a long time for this just to start off and, and jump right into it the warriors had an amazing season just such a dominant team can you make the case for us why the warriors are still why they should be the odds on favorite to repeat as champs yeah definitely well i think that there's no question this is a team that was historically good last year you know they won 67 games Uh, They were terrific on both ends of the floor. You know, they could beat you on offense and defense. And and I think people forget that they're still a young team. You have guys like Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Harrison Barnes, Draymond Green, who could continue to improve. Coach Kerr, obviously, right now is away, but uh, I think everyone expects him to be back pretty soon. And uh, he should show improvement as well in his second season. Uh, as the head coach there, it's very difficult to be a first-time head coach in the NBA. So he'll he'll do better in his second season. I think the players will be more comfortable playing for him, too, because they'll know what to expect from him. And I think players there, they feel disrespected. I did a uh, interview with Draymond Green recently where he talked about how, you know, everyone says, oh, the only reason they were able to win a championship is because 
Cleveland was banged up and they didn't face the Clippers and uh, now San Antonio is getting all this love and you know they they really do feel disrespected and I think they're on a mission to go out and prove that last year wasn't a fluke that they are a a great team and and they're a team that basically brings everyone back as you mentioned continuity and chemistry is so important I think uh, oftentimes we get caught up with you know some of the moves that happen in the offseason and surely, you know, teams like San Antonio, they improved a whole lot. But there's something to be said for bringing back the same core and having that chemistry and having guys that are comfortable with each other. And uh, Golden State has that. And not only do they have that, they have young guys that should continue to improve. Longtime Sacramento Kings reporter James Ham appeared as our second guest with the episode coming out on October 21st. James is a friend of mine whom I worked with at ESPN True Hoops Cowbell Kingdom over the years. Isaac Lohenkron was next. Like your three hosts, Isaac graduated from the University of Southern California. He was actually speaking on a USC Annenberg panel when I met him months earlier. A superb broadcaster, the podcast format was perfect for Isaac to answer all our Clippers-related questions. Fourth up was Sean Hyken, who's covered the Bulls and the NBA at large for a number of sites, most recently the Athletic Chicago. And following him was Chuck Cheney from Thunder Digest. Guest number six, Lang Whitaker, is a lifelong Hawks fan. You may know him from his years with Slam Magazine, writing on NBA.com, and the Hangtime podcast he hosts with St. Coo Smith. Aaron caught up with him here. Welcome back to the show. I'm really excited to bring you on, Lang. Oh, thanks for having me back on, and uh, congratulations on your 1,000th episode. <laughs> 900 more, but almost there. (laughs) But um, I I really do appreciate also your patience with our technical difficulties. You've been on the show two other times. I remember the first time, this was back in November of 2015, I was in a cheap motel. And I don't know if it was issues with my connection or yours or some combination, but we lost the call a couple times and you stuck with it, called us back. I really appreciate that. The first thing I just wanted to ask you was, how was your last week in Orlando? <laughs> first of all, we, you having technical difficulties on your podcast is not um, something that's unique to your podcast. <laughs> Thank you I've for done, saying that. I've done 250-something episodes of the Hangtown Podcast with Seku, and we have technical difficulties almost every week. So stuff goes wrong and, you know, mm-hmm. um, we figure out ways around that. Now, Orlando was great. This time of year is kind of like when people who cover the NBA get to go on vacations. Um, yeah. Because there's usually nothing's happening, even Past though Kyrie Irving got traded this week. But <laughs> usually it's kind of a quiet time. So um, it, it, my son doesn't start school for another couple of days. So we had a little bit of time left to uh, try to squeeze in something. So we spent a week in Orlando. Um, so it was nice. That sounds like great quality time. Was that your son's first time visiting Disney World or has he, he been went, before? No, he went when he was really young. My parents had an anniversary thing and they had they had the whole family come down. But uh-huh. he was, you know, a year or something. So he, he doesn't remember it and was too young to actually enjoy anything. So this is the first time um, where he was able to, to kind of experience it and, and realize what was happening and he had a blast just the last question about that what do you think he would say was his favorite moment visiting oh, this last week definitely meeting um winnie the pooh <laughs> he's, he's a big winnie the pooh fan and uh 
we saw Winnie the Pooh taking photos and stuff with kids, and there was a sort of a long line. It was 95 degrees, and uh, he said, let's stand in line. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah. So he ended up kind of sitting off in the shade with my wife while I stood in line for about 45 minutes. But he was patient and waited and waited and waited and got his turn and got to meet Winnie the Pooh and couldn't help but like run up and give him a big hug. So that was by far the highlight for him, I think. Cool. You mentioned the Hangtime podcast. I've been keeping up every once in a while, and I really liked your interview with Mike Lee. But just the thing that I come away with in general, for the most part, is you and Seku have such a good rapport, and I know you guys are good friends. It comes off as just so natural, the joking around, all the inside jokes, stuff that you have between you two. And... One thing I wanted to bring up too, I thought it was funny. I think Seku might have mentioned it, but when you're doing pre-draft interviews, mm-hmm. I believe it was Malik Monk. Mm-hmm. It was funny. He was giving you the shortest answers. It almost <laughs> seemed like pulling teeth, but uh, I guess you just you just have to be professional and, and just keep the conversation going. But yeah. it was funny to me. I think Seku said something. Does that ring a bell to you? We talked about how... For all those guys, I mean, that that's the most nerve-wracking week of their lives, you know, um, all these yeah. guys, because they don't know what's going to be in their future, and they don't know where they're going to go and what team, and, it, you know, it makes a big financial difference where they get picked. Um, so that, that whole, like, kind of two weeks leading up to the draft is, is pretty nerve-wracking for those guys. So, I mean, I get it. I, you know, they don't want to come on the podcast or come on, do an interview. It's not just us. I mean, you listen to all the interviews those guys do in those weeks leading up to it. They don't yeah. say a whole lot. They don't They don't know where they're going to go. They don't want to, you know, say something that some team doesn't like. So for all those guys, it's pretty tough. Um, I mean, we've had interviews where guys say yes, no, yes, no. Um, <laughs> I, I think a lot of that also is just a function of age. And as you get older, yeah. you're, you have more stuff you can talk about and are willing to talk about. I mean, we, I also did an interview with Malik Monk and uh, Bam Adebayo and mm-hmm. uh, De'Aaron Fox at the rookie uh, photo shoot a couple of weeks ago on NBA TV. Uh, and that's bouncing around on Twitter, still getting liked by all the Kentucky fans. Uh, <laughs> but if you watch that interview, I mean, it's watch that and compare it to when he was on the podcast and it's like a totally different guy. So I think he's, uh, he's kind of happy knowing what's, what's his future, uh, what his future holds for him. Yeah, I was going to say some guys are more talkative or more articulate than others, but I remember now that you bring it up, what you guys were talking about, just that it doesn't make sense. There's no incentive for them to say something too honest or open and jeopardize getting drafted at a certain position or or going to a certain city. And so that makes perfect sense. And Didn't mean to single him out, but (laughs) I thought that was interesting. Either way... Well, I'll say this. Either way, he was way more interesting than Seku was on that episode. <laughs> I'm joking. There it is. <laughs> That's like what I was alluding to before. Yeah, I mean, look, real quick to what you said about yeah. me and Seku and our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I've known him for, we've known each other 15, 16 years now, maybe more. Um and we were good friends before we started doing the podcast. And I think that's the part you can't really fake um, on anything, any popular show or any type of recording or anything you do. I mean, if you have this built in thing there, then that's what comes through. And, you know, before we worked together for a long time, Saker and I would talk on the phone a couple of times a week and have basically the same conversations that we're having on the podcast now. 
And then when we started doing the podcast together, we don't talk on the phone as much. We kind of save it for the air. We know which buttons to push with each other. And we know mm-hmm. what we're allowed to make fun of and what we're not allowed to make fun of. Like I know he's probably terrified right now because Michigan's about to lose to Florida today on CBS. Um, so I, there's <laughs> things we always, you know, make fun of. I mean, I, and, you know, Rick Fox gets thrown into this too. We did the podcast with him for a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, the three of us lived on a bus together <laughs> for a while. I mean, there's really nothing we don't know about each other. And um, I think that that's kind of what comes through when we do the podcast together. Yeah, it comes across as organic. And obviously, um, with Lauren and Joshua, who's my twin brother, we have that. Lauren, I've been good friends with for not nearly as long as you and Seku. But it's, it's just a good time talking basketball, interviewing people. Basically, the last thing I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. is about your Hawks. And I know it might be a little bit of a sore point. I'm curious, though, <laughs> because you've followed and covered the NBA for a long time. So I'm sure you're used to the ebbs and flows of team success. But how are you feeling about this season, given that they're firmly in rebuilding mode? I think it's a good time to be in rebuilding mode. You know, the, the, the way that it's shaken out right now, with there's, there's basically this top hierarchy of teams Golden State uh, in the West, you know, I guess you put Houston and San Antonio up there and in the East, Cleveland, uh, Boston. If you're not in that top, 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 top tier, then you better be getting better at trying to get to that tier. And I think the way the Hawks were kind of set up, um, there wasn't really a way for them to get to that without bottoming out. And if they could do this the right way, I mean, they, if you can bottom out this year, get one of these guys because there seems to be a couple of guys who might be franchise impact players in this next draft. You could have this young core of players to build around. You know, you, you got Schroeder long-term at a, at a reasonable price. Um, they, they love um, DeAndre Bembry and Torian Prince. You know, they just got Deadman from the Spurs. There, there's a couple of guys there that I think you could build around. And if you get that franchise guy to plug in there, then maybe you got something a couple of years from now. So, uh, you know, I think it's also Travis Schlank, the new GM. This is his turn to, to, to build something and show, you know, he was brought in for a reason. And uh, now we'll see exactly what that plan is. Yeah, I saw a couple of days ago online Westgate Las Vegas Sportsbook had the over under for the change in Atlanta's wins at negative 17 and a half. And there's a handful of teams in the Eastern Conference and just around the league that also, they lost a star or two and are figuring to see a big change in the negative direction in wins and losses. But it does make sense to rebuild right now. The Clippers are totally different, but they made the opposite decision in um, re-upping with Blake Griffin after losing Chris Paul. So it's an interesting situation, but they're still going to be fun with Blake Griffin flying around, DeAndre Jordan still mm-hmm. there. Just basically... I just want to say we really appreciate you. I know I've said it before. I just wanted to emphasize it. You were guest number six. We've had (laughs) 71 now on through the first 99 episodes. And it's a pleasure to bring you on as we celebrate this one, number 100. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me on so many times, Aaron. And um, good luck, man. Keep it up. That's, That's the hardest. To me, one of the hardest things about doing the podcast is just doing it. And, and, you know, you got to put in the work and you got to do it every single week. And uh, you guys are doing that. So keep it up. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of your off season. No problem.
In advance of his first appearance, Lang told us about his dog Starberry. We love the name, but that fun fact wasn't unsolicited. Before a new guest would come on, we got into the habit of requesting a quirky detail or anecdote about him or her and adding those to our episode intros. It was fun to learn more about them, and it served as a unifying thread throughout the podcast. Here are some of our favorites. Something you might not know about John is that he's the first graduate of his alma mater, Emerson College, to ever play professional basketball, playing for a year in Greece. He can also sing a mean Frank Sinatra at karaoke. Marina boasts a proud collection of more than 2,000 video games, stretching from the late 70s to the present day. Her favorite system is the Virtual Boy. Andy Larson. As you'll certainly gather from listening to this episode, Andy's a really smart guy, so much so that he skipped both the first and third grades, but then he had to repeat the fifth grade, so maybe not that smart. As an impressionable young 11-year-old, Dane got to attend his first NBA game, sitting in the fourth row, getting to watch scoring leader at the time, Allen Iverson, live at the Rose Garden. It was just phenomenal. But the special treat for Dane was getting yelled at by Detroit bad boy Rick Mahorn, whom he did not recognize at the time. As Dane tells it, this giant dude looks up at me, and we lock eyes. Finally, he looks at me with more anger than should be directed to an 11-year-old boy, and yells, What? You can't talk? This preseason... Kevin had an interesting time at a Hawks media basketball tournament when head coach Mike Budenholzer stopped by and saw him trying to hoist up NBA range three-pointers and proceeded to relentlessly mock and pantomime his shooting form. Chuck Chaney. He's a Titanic fan of the movie Titanic. So gigantic that he claims to have seen it more than 40 times over the past three months. Now that's a busy off-season. Zach Oliver, known to some as the Bowtie Killer, owned a grand total of zero bow ties before Glenn Davis came into his life in his first season covering the team. It all started before a post-game interview when Big Baby summoned him over to fix his bow tie. They bonded over bow ties that year, and now Zach owns probably about 33 of them. Let's bring on the bow tie killer himself. Frank Madden. He was born in Bavaria, grew up mostly in Wisconsin, now runs a site called Brew Hoop. Despite all of that, he does not drink beer. We're going to be talking about the Pacers with Jared Wade. I've known him for a long time, but I never knew this one weird fact about him, which is that he hates bananas so much that he doesn't even like being in the same room as them. Tim Fakeless. He also plays bass and lead guitar. His old punk rock band once wrote a reggae tribute song about actress Jennifer Lawrence. Now that you know Tim, I'll kick it over to LLC to start the show. Following Lang, writer and TV host Steven Anderson was our next guest. After that, Andy Liu spoke with us for the first time. We heard from Andy again this week, but before we play that segment, here's a look back at his glorious on the NBA beat run. Through the first 99 episodes, the one-of-a-kind Andy Liu of Warriors World and the Light Years podcast easily leads all guests with five appearances. Our most prolific guest first came on in early December 2015. At the time of the interview, the Warriors were five and a half months removed from their first championship since 1975 and feeling really good. In fact, the episode, which remains our most listened to ever, is named The Warriors Are Cocky As Hell after a colorful claim Andy made during our discussion. 
At this point, Golden State's record stood at a perfect 19-0 following a close call in Utah. Upon the show's release, the Warriors went on to win five more games before finally succumbing to the Bucks on December 12th. Here we are asking Andy about Draymond Green's myriad contributions and what makes the Warriors' small ball lineup so dominant around the league. This is Joshua jumping in now. Draymond Green, that's all that really needs to be said, but I'm going <laughs> to actually ask you a question. He was He's... my pick for Defensive Player of the Year last season. I thought he should have been an all-star. I think he should be again. He's shooting the three amazingly well now. His passing is off the charts. Defense, toughness. Like you said, the transition offense he provides. What does he mean to the team this year? And without him, are they really even the same kind of team? Oh, without him, they're <laughs> without him, they are the they're probably a fringe playoff team. No, no, no. Without they're him, like they're like a yeah. five or six seed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. Man, the improvements that he's made year to year has been insane. So from his rookie year, to recount a little bit from his rookie year, he was good at making hustle plays. So he's one of those guys where, oh, he's going to be a fun glue guy, right? Then he started making threes. Then you're like, oh, wow, he can actually play some defense and he can start making threes. Um, And then last year, he was able to show off more versatility um, in terms of making threes, making passes. And now this year, he's made a full-on superstar improvement into where he does everything well. So not only intangibles that everybody loves talking about uh but also making uh the, the the normal stats so great shooting percentage from three uh assists rebounds blocks um and of course the staple of that the death lineup doesn't happen without him and he's also the most vocal kind on the team easily uh, they call him the heartbeat he's pretty much screams at everyone he loves screaming at harrison barnes i've seen him yell at steph bogut all those guys but but it's in fun and he also and he's also yelling at steve kerr all the time um, but they yell at each other. So he's the guy that brings the fire out. I would say he's probably the emotional leader um, and keeps everything composed at all times. I think the main thing that I would say in terms of that leadership is that he's always screaming at the rest, but he somehow doesn't get a technical. Don't know how that happens, but he's really good at that. Because, I mean, the, war, the Warriors last year, I think, um, I forget which, uh, I think it was Memphis. And they were struggling a lot. The guy started whining after every call. I mean, Clay wasn't was whining. Even Steph was. Iguodala, and they were getting to the point where they almost Clipper esque in terms of they were getting out of their own game because they were just worried about the officials so much. And I think Draymond knew that, pulled, reined it back in a little bit. And I guess it doesn't hurt when they when Steve Kerr makes that uh, change on defense and kind of wins the series for them essentially against Memphis. The Warriors have put out that small ball lineup a decent amount this season with Curry, Thompson, Draymond Green, Harrison Barnes, and Andre Iguodala. That lineup's just been destroying people on both ends, having a ridiculous offensive and defensive rating. Other teams have been trying this too. Most notably, I think the Pacers playing Paul George at power forward (laughs) a lot, and that's worked out a little bit for them. Other teams have been trying to use it. I know uh, Houston was trying to use Marcus Thornton at four for a little. Mm. That didn't work very well. That is ballsy. (laughs) Well, it would be Thornton and Ariza at three, four or something. (laughs) I don't know. It didn't work. Um, (laughs) Anyway, why would you say it's so effective for the Warriors? What in their personnel and schemes makes it so dominant on both sides as opposed to other teams? Uh, I think... 
I think that one is uh, you can't really duplicate guys um, like Steph, um, like Draymond. Well, I mean, I, I think so. The main the main improvement that I saw this year, not the main improvement, but the main strength that I saw on the bench for the Warriors is the intelligence, is the uh, mental IQ when they're on the court. Um, and I think that that's the biggest difference in terms of uh, what they can do and what other teams can do. Because in terms of athleticism itself, um, I don't think they are like incredibly vastly higher than anyone else in a team like not, not the Thunder, not the Clippers, not the Rockets even, right? Or the Hawks, something like that. But I think that they're able to play smarter in that system than other guys. So when they have an Iguodala on the court, uh, who is the smartest guy on the team, and a Draymond on the court, a Steph, and then you have Harrison Barnes who does what he does, and Clay, who's kind of an airhead sometimes, but I mean... You know, he's he's one of the best shooters in the league, so can't really screw that up. So I think the IQ part is what makes that lineup so good. Uh, when Steph gets double and Draymond gets the ball in a 4-3, he almost never screws it up. And Iguodala knows when to cut, uh, knows when to shoot. I mean, the 4-3 makes it easy. But on the defensive end, it's what they're able to do in terms of knowing when to double, bigs, when to dig. Steph is really good at that. And so they're really good at playing off each other as well and knowing where everyone's going to be which says a lot about Draymond, who's essentially uh, manning that defense. Um, so I think that that's what sets them apart, and I think that's only matched by one team in the league, the Spurs. So that's going to be interesting to see when we're gonna, uh, when they have 10 players on the court and everybody's playing high IQ basketball. So I think it's going to look something like the, the Heat-Spurs series of a, of a couple of years ago, the one that went seven. Just everybody incredibly talented and, and knows exactly where to go um, on the court uh, at all times. So that's going to be a very interesting matchup. The previous clip ends with Andy looking forward to a Spurs-Warriors Western Conference Final, pitting the two teams that, to him, possess the highest basketball IQ in the NBA. The Thunder had other plans, however, eliminating the Spurs in six games en route to their date with the defending champion Warriors. We checked in with Andy on May 8th after the Dubs unexpectedly dropped Game 1 of the Western Conference Finals at home. Andy wasn't overly worried with the team's prospects down a game, and he was proven correct in that the Warriors ultimately outlasted the Thunder in seven games despite falling down three games to one. That said, in retrospect, his concern for Stephen Curry's health foreshadowed Golden State's eventual finals loss to Cleveland. First game was a little bit surprising. Now the Warriors find themselves in an interesting position, which you and others have likened to when they were down 2-1 last year to the Grizzlies in the Western semifinals. We all know this was a 73-win dominant team. Curry is healthy, but they at least temporarily handed over home court advantage. On a scale of one to panicked, how should the Warriors feel right now? Ooh, how how that's a good one. How should the Warriors feel as compared to how they actually feel on this fun? How how they should feel is, is, I mean, they... They should probably panic. I mean, like a controlled panic. Obviously, we don't, you know, want the we don't want Steve Kerr to suddenly start, you know, doing some random make wholesale schematic changes. It's not like they lost right. by thirty. But I mean, there, there's there's something to be said to where hey, because this is something that's been happening all season. They've got to figure out something to where hey, they're going up big, but they're also blowing these leads a lot. And it's not so much because the other team is coming back and slapping them in the face, uh, which OKC did a little bit. A lot of it is, hey, the Warriors just kind of seem to lose focus, you know, start making turnovers that aren't 
necessarily forced by the defense taking shots with 20 seconds left of the shot clock um you know fading away which are you know normal shots for them but still you've got to got to have a bit of a better mindset especially when the game gets a little bit closer um yeah which goes to speak to how confident arrogant cocky whatever you want to say they are but it's just you know weighing it in a little bit i think kerr knows that i think the players know that I, I think they would have kept playing that way if they had won last night. Yeah, uh, so, so you think it could have been a good thing for them? I think so. I think most people are thinking that it's going to be a good thing. I think so as well. Though I think that there is one issue, is that if Steph was 100% healthy, I think that he would have bailed them out last night, which would have been fine. But moving forward, I don't think he's going to get to 100% uh, for the rest of the playoffs. So it's a matter of, can he play at 80 85% and still carry this offense when it counts throughout the rest of the series. So we'll see. You don't want to go away from what was working so well for you all season. We know they had a record-breaking year. But then again, you spoke about that arrogance. Do you think now that they were scared a little bit that that has a potential to improve their decision-making and reduce the chances of them letting up like they did in Game 1? I think so. I think that's a great way to put it. I think... Coming into game one, they actually had a um, they had an improved focus and an improved concentration. They played very well in the first half, both offensively and defensively. I mean, they were up by 13 at halftime, and Steph was hitting those crazy threes that he does. Um, that's what makes this team so great. They weren't turning it over. You know, they were fine on the boards. Everything was fine. And then all of a sudden in the second half, OKC came back with a run. They unraveled, and they lost composure. All of that stuff that, that shouldn't happen to them did. So it's one of those things where the, you, we know that they're capable of doing it. They did it for the first half. So it's just a matter of how are they going to do it again in game two? And then when OKC comes back and hits them, are they going to lose composure again? You would believe that a championship team like this wouldn't lose composure like that again. But hey, I mean, OKC has already done this to the Spurs three straight games. That was yeah. that was super impressive. So, so I mean, it's interesting. If you're a Warriors fan, I wouldn't be too worried, I guess, but... I mean, this is, I mean, this, this is uh, Kevin Durant and, and Russell Westbrook. We also asked Andy what, if any, adjustments Golden State should make against OKC. I think the Warriors need to go small more. I think whenever the Warriors struggle, whenever they go down in a series, the only cure, not the only cure, but the, the best cure that they have is just to put Draymond Green at center. Speed everything up. Draymond Green is one of those rare or maybe only guys that can play three, four, and five and rebound as well. So I, I think that the Warriors need to play Draymond at center a lot more to speed the game up because a lot of that second half was played in the half court. And in the half court, uh, OKC out-rebounded them, got to the line with free throws, and then uh, were able to lock down Steph Curry off the ball. So I, I think um, a lot of it – there was a moment in the third quarter where they're up by 10 to 12, you know, even getting to the to middle there. And then because – Donovan put in Cantor and Adams because he went big. Uh, Kerr was like, oh my God, I need to go big too. So he put in spades. And I'm sitting here like, <laughs> I mean, just because the other team is going big doesn't necessarily mean you have to. Andy's third time on the show came almost exactly one year after his first appearance. We used the opportunity to grill him on Mavericks newcomer Harrison Barnes's potential now that the former Tar Heel had moved on from Golden State. With Dirk Nowitzki missing most of the season up until that point, Barnes led Dallas in scoring, but the Mavs' record was horrendous. Andy, along with Jason Gallagher from The Ringer, helped us understand what to expect from Barnes moving forward. So that was his third appearance. 
The fourth episode of Andy came at a fascinating time near the end of the Warriors' 2016-17 season on March 31st. When Kevin Durant went down with a left knee injury, the Warriors lost 5 of 7 and rumors of their impending demise were greatly exaggerated. Calm, cool, and collected, Andy Liu remained confident during the uncharacteristic rough patch. Then Golden State reeled off 9 straight wins. That's when Andy came onto the show. After that, the Warriors won 6 of their last 7 regular season games as they readied for another deep postseason run. Believe it or not, in this episode, Andy argued that the mighty Warriors were actually being underrated. I want to talk about the overreaction in my mind to the Durant injury. They went two and five, including that game at Washington. And a lot of people were ready to say that this Warriors run is just done. Just it's over. And people were worrying that also coincided with a stretch where Stephen Curry wasn't hitting that many of his shots. And they hadn't lost consecutive games since almost two years earlier in April of 2015. Was that something, I know you're a pretty confident guy, Andy, was that something that you weren't too worried about and you thought that people were making too much of? Or was that a legitimate scare until they righted themselves? Yes, I like. I was confident about it. But the second part is, I mean, you look at the schedule, you look at what they were going through, you look at... You know, Kevin Durant had just gone down and these guys were really like, you know, shook up about that. And they had to adjust in a certain way. And then in that adjustment period, adjusting back to who Steph is, Steph couldn't hit a shot. Like the worst slump of his entire career, at least from what I've seen. Clay was going through a slump as well. Draymond Green hasn't shot the ball well all year and still isn't. Right. Um, So they had a lot of issues on that. end, And they ended up going two and five. And then they played, what, eight games in 13 nights. So. Since then, obviously, they've been great. They've also played a ton of trash teams. And the schedule is going to get better from here. They, they got 6-7 or seven at home to end the season. Durant's now back. And, uh, you know, if, if there was a finals game today, he'd be playing. Uh, but he'll be back in a week and a half, two weeks. And so, so the team is fine again. And so that's why I was never too worried about it. Most recently, on June 1st, Andy represented the Warriors in our 2017 NBA Finals preview episode. The Warriors were heading into the finals having won each of their first 12 playoff games. Would they make it a perfect 16? Andy thought so. Well, kind of. He made two predictions. Arrogant Andy, as he called himself, picked a Warriors sweep. Analytical Andy, again his term, went with Warriors in five. For the Warriors, a part of this is revenge um, for kind of you know, an atonement, I guess, for what happened last season. But part of this is it's a brand new team. They know that. It's a whole different bench. There's Steph, there's Clay, there's Draymond, yes. There's Iguodala, yes. But, you know, it's Zaza, it's David West, it's JaVale McGee, it's Kevin Durant, obviously, right? And I, I think part of it this season is these guys are trying to put the finishing touches on what will be, if they win the championship, one of the greatest playoff runs of all time, right? If not the greatest, um, in terms of what I think is going to happen. So I think for certain players, it'll be redemption. I think for Steph Curry specifically, for Draymond Green, it'll be redemption. Uh, mainly for the ways those guys uh, struggled. Steph Curry struggled overall. Draymond Green getting himself suspended and costing the team uh, the championship. So from that aspect, yes. But from the other side, just from how they're playing, this is something that they want to win just because to cap off you know, a great season. 
And you don't see this often from a team that's adding, you know, others say a super team, but really not in the way most other teams were built in that, you know, they just added Duran and, you know, they already had the core set. The expectation is that they need to win, uh, not that they were going to get a year to kind of have those pieces fill in. It was expected that they were going to win. Not only this, part of it is these guys know that they're looking to win maybe two, three, four more titles after this as well. So it's going to be great to win one if they do. But part of it, these guys know that they've got a lot more to go in terms of, I guess, legacy, dynasty, whatever, whatever however you want to think about it. Thanks to a strong Game 4 win by a Cavaliers team on the brink of elimination, the series ends in 5, and analytical Andy is right this time. He has won the battle, but arrogant Andy could still win the war. We have on the legend, all-time leader in guest appearances and total downloads, Andy Liu. How's it going, man? <laughs> I got people from uh, like India and China downloading it. So we've got this. You guys see Mr. Robot? It's like when they spam download this stuff. Or whatever. <laughs> I've got yeah, it. hopefully they're not all bots, right? <laughs> hey, whatever gets the money paid, uh, if there is at all. That's, that's, uh, that's what I'm here for, guys. How's your off season going so far? It's good. It's a little more slower than usual. So mm-hmm. um I'm trying to I'm trying to calm down a little bit nowadays. So if I speak a little slower nowadays and with more coherence, you'll know why. Um, so it's good. A lot of celebrating, but but it's good. Yeah, the Warriors had a little bit of a slower off season, definitely than last year. But some interesting moves too. What did you think of what they've done so far? Uh, arrogance, like just being assholes. I think just the fact that they thought we thought that they would lose a couple guys. Like Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston, maybe Zaza, all right, David West would retire. If I had to guess before the offseason started, I'd say they'd probably lose two out of those four. And, I mean, they would have been fine. They would have been heavy favors to win the championship regardless. Um, instead, <laughs> they signed all of them back because of KD taking that pay cut. They went ahead and actually signed more people, Omri Caspi and Nick Young, and then they went ahead and drafted someone that is apparently, you know, uh, the next best rim protector, right? So they actually found a way to get better more than teams in the lottery or even other contending teams. And they're the ones that, you know, have been the best basketball team, some are arguing of all time. So it's actually pretty ridiculous. Um, And at a certain point you get spoiled, but we're not there yet. Of those guys that they've added this off season, who do you see making the biggest impact for next season? Regular season, I'd say... I, I personally like Omri Caspi the most out of all those additions. Like he's not going to come in and he's not going to hijack the offense or do anything crazy. He's a good finisher. He's going to make threes. He's going to defend. He's long enough to defend. Um, and from what I've seen so far, he's a relatively smart player, right? So for me, that's probably one of the guys I would play uh, more. But what's going to be most fun is, is going to be Nick Young because um, he's going to be the one that's coming into games you know, either up 10, down 10, and he's going to either shoot him right back into it or it's just going to be a colossal show from the jump. So most exciting, probably Nick Young. Uh, I think the one that's probably going to be most consistent is uh, Omri Caspi, and that's who I'm excited to see. Although one of my favorites is Damian Jones. I'm excited to see him. He's he's young. He's healthy. He's like a, he's like a young version of JaVale McGee. So I want to see him with potential to be a little bit more on defense. So him and Jordan Bell are going to be fun just because of, you know, uh, 
we're talking about a year from now, you know, when they're defending maybe the third title, they're going to need those guys to actually step up, right? Because not going to mm-hmm. be able to live with minimum guys forever. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, those things are kind of, you know, first world problems, I guess. <laughs> you guys mentioned that the Warriors had kind of a lazy off season. Meanwhile, it seems like almost every other elite team or team that's trying to become elite was scrambling around, jockeying for power, just to try to get on the level of Golden State. And from my perspective, they haven't been able to do so. It just seems to me like the Warriors are probably just laughing and kind of rolling their eyes while all this craziness goes on around the league. What are your thoughts on that phenomenon? I actually really like that the rest of the league did that. And I think a lot of this is uh, an F you to how wrong people were. Um, and the loser mentality from people who are saying like, hey, you know, the Warriors are this great. It's bad for the league. Like nobody's going to try anymore. What's even the point, right? And I've always said like that's a crazy thing to say because if you were a competitive person, if you played sports or not even like Lauren, if you're, you know, doing trivia or whatever it is, right, the, the stuff that you know, it doesn't matter if someone knows a lot more than you. You're still in there to compete. Like you're there to play. You're there to win. You're not going to just give up because a team is all of a sudden, you know, considered one of the best of all time. Like, you think these guys are scared uh, of Steph Curry on the court? Like, I mean, they might be intimidated, but they're not, like, out here just they don't want to, like, they don't want to play basketball. I think part of why people are saying that is because they just didn't like the Warriors, right? That was that, like I was saying, loser mentality that people have where it's like, well, you know, people know they don't want to play anymore because the Warriors are good. That's not how athletes think. The reason why they got here in the first place is because of how confident and cocky they are. That's why they're here. So it is pretty cool to see like the Rockets go for it, right? I don't think they have a chance, but screw it. They went ahead and traded, you know, most of their guys for Chris Paul. So now they've got two mega superstars to together to, to go up against the Warriors. Like that's pretty awesome. And you've got other teams as well gearing up like the Thunder. Um, and even you look at the lower rung teams like the Nuggets and even the Blazers and those type of teams that just they keep trying to add pieces to, to beat the Warriors. Like they're not like, oh, we're just going to tank. The Nuggets could have easily just kept Jokic and Murray, for example, and then just not sign Millsap or anybody else and be like, hey, we're going to extend this window and we're going to say, hey, when those guys hit their prime four years from now, that's when we'll go for it, right? That's not what they're doing. Like instead, they just paid $100 million to a guy that's like 34 years old. That's pretty much on the downside of his career is still good. But they're like, hey, we want to make the playoffs. We still want to have a chance to make it to the second round, right? These guys aren't, these guys aren't playing basketball to lose. We, we, we take out some of the human mentality sometimes because – you know, like if you're playing a video game, then it's great. Like you don't have to worry about these guys, but this is real life. These guys want to win. Harden needs to win now. If he doesn't win now, he's on the downside of his career. And you're going to go with it for Harden when he's 35, right? Like yeah. that, that doesn't bode well for him or you as a franchise, how you look as a franchise. So that was pretty cool to see from the rest of the league, I thought. I completely agree. I think it's refreshing to see whether or not all this action amuses the Warriors who, as you always remind us, are really arrogant (laughs) and are surely not worried about all this. But it's an exciting time in the league, and I can't echo this enough. The guests who come on and contribute to our show are so valued and important, and you've been on so many times, and you're so reliable. We really appreciate that. I'd like to think we're professional about things for the most part, we get our prospective guests potential topics ahead of time and uh, and try not to give them short notice. But in a pinch, you've been able to come on 
on short notice and we really appreciate that and you always are entertaining and insightful and it's just a pleasure to talk to you whenever we do yeah i appreciate it man i i, I love you guys having me on you're the, o- the only people that ask me more than like three times so uh, <laughs> people get sick of me after a while <laughs> so far no sign of that yet but stay tuned <laughs> i appreciate it thank you lauren thank you Aaron. Our personal friend and creator of the NoLookPass.com, Ray Moraldi, was on as our ninth guest to talk about the Lakers and Kobe's farewell season. Mike Prada joined us to talk Wizards after him. I was really excited to have Eric Hasseltine on the show. The longtime Grizzlies radio play-by-play man got his start in radio at UC Davis's campus radio station, KDVS 90.3 FM. That's where I got my broadcast start as well. Then, John Corrales lauded Coach Brad Stevens and the Celtics' young core in a can't-miss interview Lauren conducted while Joshua and I were away. In the midst of a sun season full of turmoil, we talked with our buddy Andrew Lynch. Then came Nuggets guest Justin Fadre, who just graced us with another appearance. It's hard to believe it's been nearly 20 months since your last and only appearance on the show. We'll change that soon. But welcome back, Justin. Uh, Thank you. It's nice to be back. Yeah, it feels good to be reunited again after this long hiatus. Since so much of the team's makeup has changed over this year and a half, I have to get your general impressions of this action-packed offseason. Seemed like really busy, lots of moving parts. Yeah, they needed to obviously try and figure out a direction for where they were going to go because they had a lot of roster overlap and lots of lots of power forwards on the roster. And they didn't seem able to exactly move many of those guys, if any of them. And then then they ended up having to trade for Trey Lyles and Tyler Lydon, who they took in the first round of the draft. Um, so the draft didn't really work out for them as well as I'm sure they would have hoped, but you can't, things are never perfect. And I'm sure that they tried, but it's hard to be critical when you're not in the room and you don't know exactly what's going on. And I'm sure that they did everything that they could, but then they, um, were able to get Paul Millsap. And that's obviously the big thing that they got done this off season. The dynamic that he brings is going to be interesting. He's um, obviously a top-tier player, and he'll be the best power forward that they've had in a while. And a pairing with Jokic will be interesting. Regarding that Millsap signing, I think it's interesting to consider what he would bring to the team. You mentioned prior to this offseason, they had some overlapping talents. Most notably, I think Jokic and Nurkic sort of serving the same role. How do you see Millsap and Nikola Jokic fitting together next season? I think that Jokic is a very easy player to play with. And it's easy for someone to just slide right in there and basically play their role. And I think Millsap will be able to direct the defense and improve that end for them because Jokic 
kind of struggles on that end. Sometimes he's not great, but he's not terrible. Um, so Millsap should shore up the defensive concerns. And if he can do that, then then the Nuggets should be already better off. And Jokic is obviously a great passer and plays well within himself and within the offense. And that side of the, the floor shouldn't be a problem. I want to ask you really quickly about Gary Harris. He's seen by a lot of people as kind of the future of the franchise. What's to like there? And, and what do you think realistic expectations for him would be this season? I might have been on your podcast, or maybe another one, when I talked about how much I like Gary Harris, even a year and a half ago or whatever it was. And he was he wasn't getting as much playing time, but I think it will be hard for him to replicate the year that he had last year again. But if he is able to offensively, I will be very, very impressed. He has some concerns on defense, and I think that his reputation is such that he's, you know, kind of overrated on that end, even though I really like him. But totally ignoring that side of the ball, his offense has been amazing, and he's an underrated passer. He moves well without the ball, and he can set up players once he gets it. It's, it's, it's interesting how he plays, and, and he doesn't need the ball to make others better, but he, he's a great player and a smart player and he finds spots and, and I can see how Nuggets would want to use him as a, as a, you know, franchise cornerstone moving forward. But I also see him being very expensive if it comes down to that. But if they want to build around him, I see no problem with that at all. (laughs) Well, we look forward to seeing what Harris does this year. And thank you so much for coming on again, Justin. We'd love to have you in the future. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be back and I'm happy to be on again. The infamous Stack Mac, Holly McKenzie, stopped by weeks before Toronto hosted the 2016 All-Star Weekend. Zach Oliver was a magical guest, appearing from Orlando on January 28th. And then Conrad Kazmarek was our first Cavaliers guest. That was the same season Cleveland secured its first championship in franchise history. Of our 71 guests, 10 of them have appeared on multiple episodes. We're lucky enough to be joined by six of them again on this 100th episode. And those are Lang Whitaker, Andy Liu, Dan Feldman, Nick Denning, and Mike Pina. Unfortunately, there were four multi-time guests who weren't able to appear on the episode but we've really enjoyed working with them and look forward to collaborating again those are james ham espn's yovan buha whose usc days overlapped with all three hosts dane carbaugh who's dan feldman's colleague over at nbc sports and fox sports's andrew lynch the final multi-time guest i haven't mentioned josh baumgard He's on with us again right here. Welcome back to the show, Josh. How has your offseason been? It's been great. I'm just glad that Miami Heat has re-upped on the Deion Waiters experience. James Johnson, poor man's LeBron James, is back in the fold. They drafted a young guy. I believe started Kentucky last year. I mean, there's a lot to like about this Heat team going forward. I know they're not a championship contender, but I'm ready to, to see what the season brings. Yeah, there's a lot of excitement going on in Miami. 
And this is your fourth appearance on the show, Josh. We've had you three times previously. Last time we talked, it was right before the 2016-17 season tipped off. What was it like reporting on the Heat's historic turnaround last season? They went 30-11 and 11 after starting 11-30. and 30. People are going to think I'm crazy. They do think I'm crazy. And my dad actually proffered this declaration kind of early on in the second half of the season. But they're more fun to watch this regular season team than any of the LeBron eras, any of the Heat Knicks rivalry years with Zoe and Tim Hardaway. I mean, this regular season team, the way that they changed just did a 180. I've never seen anything like it. I've never been more entertained by a Heat regular season than the second half of last year. So you talked about Dion Waiters, and I know you're excited about his return. It's kind of an interesting situation. They're putting a lot into that project, and it really reaped dividends last year. He bet on himself basically with that one-year $2.9 million contract, and he was rewarded handsomely. What do you see for him going forward, and how does he fit into the vision for Pat Riley and company? Well, while I don't think the overall contract was a bad one, I think it has good value. I believe it comes in at just under $10 million if you take out all the unattainable incentives from what I was reading. I think the worry is, is that he gets a little too comfortable and he tries to take on more than he can chew, which has always been the case because for the Dion Waiters experience in years past. You know, this is a guy that's supremely talented. There's a reason he was a top five pick and he's only 25 years old. The hope has to be that he's not going to want to take control of this team and make it his own. Because when Dion tries to do too much, that's when he gets into trouble. This year, the goal to me should be just to replicate last year, stay a little healthier doing so. I mean, he only played 46 games last year. So uh, shoot the ball well. He shot 40% from three, a career high last year, I believe. He did really well with Goran Dragic. He played unselfish most of the time, especially in the second half of the year. Played good defense. I mean, to me, that should be the focus. Just Focus on consistency. Just just do the same thing you did last year, and then you can start to build on that and take on a bigger role. Yeah, he was looking really confident last year, choosing his spots wisely. And like you said, he didn't try to do too much, which is something that seems like it's pretty uncharacteristic of him, but it was working well. I wanted to ask you too, before I cede to Lauren, just about this next year's season team and what they're looking to do in the summer of 2018, my understanding is that they'll be swinging for the fences that next offseason with all these really good big name free agents available and that they've retained some of their flexibility by being able to trade Dion Waiters if they have to. To what extent is my understanding right from your standpoint? I don't think you're wrong. Right now, if you look at their cap sheet, you're going to say, well, all this money they spent on Deion Waiters and James Johnson and Hassan Whiteside, they're not going to have the cap space to lure one of those big whales you're talking about next summer. I mean, guys like, I believe, DeMarcus Cousins. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there, Paul George. But the thing we have to remember is that you could always acquire these guys via sign-in trades. You can always acquire these guys by moving pieces out. To me, Hassan Whiteside is a tradable contract. He's making $24 million. Goran Dragic at just $17 million in base salary, he's a tradable contract. James Johnson at 13 that James Johnson at 13 to me, over the next 40 years, people think is probably the most untradable contract, but this is a guy that was really their everything last year. I think all these guys are movable 
if Riley has a guarantee he can get a whale. So now he can meet with guys and then he can get approval and say, oh, I, we agree to terms on this contract. And then they can clear the space to uh, squeeze him in just as the Celtics did with Gordon Hayward this past summer. So I agree with you. I think Riley is always thinking bigger. I think he has to understand that this team, while it will be pretty competitive in the conference and it could potentially be a top four seed, it's not a championship contender, especially with Golden State, Houston, you know, even Cleveland, LeBron is just a shoe into the NBA finals. So he knows he needs another big piece and he's always going to be eyeing that next big piece. Who it is, uh, we'll see. Hopefully he doesn't strike out for the third time in the last two years. As we said earlier, you had three previous appearances on the show. Your first was in mid-February of 2016, right in the middle of the rookie season of Justice Winslow. And during that appearance, you were really bullish on him, especially his defensive ability and what he meant for the Heat. He had a bit of a struggle last season. He missed the last 48 games of the season with a bad shoulder injury in late December. He missed 16 games in the earlier part of the season with a wrist injury. For next season, what do you think would be fair expectations for Winslow entering year three at just 21 years old still? Yeah, to me, a lot of people write him off and they already think he's nothing. But we got to remember guys like Draymond Green and Kawhi Leonard, two truly elite players that the Heat would obviously be thrilled if Winslow became anything close to those guys. It took those guys a few years to develop. You know, each year they built on it. Injuries are bad luck. Yeah, he's got a lot of talent, especially as a creator, as a defender. He can do a little bit of everything. I think he's the key to their season, really, in a sense, because he's the only guy that they don't really know what he is. I think they know what they're going to get most likely from Whiteside, Dragic, Johnson, and Waiters, which is the core of the team. Winslow's the big question mark. You know, Can he take another step offensively where he's impactful on both ends? And if he is, then all of a sudden, he'd have a really balanced, really versatile roster. So the goal for him, I think, should be and if I'm Spo, I play him a lot at point forward, get the ball in his hands, but have him go against bigger guys, have him defend bigger guys. He could beat certain some of these guys off the dribble. I wouldn't put too much pressure on him offensively. You know, as we saw, he's, he hasn't proven to be a three-point shooter yet, which is why I think you have to give him the ball and let him create some and make some things happen. But uh, I'm really excited to see what Winslow has to offer in this third year because it's going to tell us a lot about him. You know, this is the year that really – a lot of guys, if they're going to break out, they at least show signs of it. So all eyes will be on him in Miami, and I think he's their most important player. Josh, we appreciate you coming on as always. We always love hearing your thoughts about the Heat, and thank you so much for helping us celebrate our 100th episode with us. Thank you, and I appreciate being a, what is this, a four-time entry on this awesome podcast, and I'll be expecting a, a nice fat bonus check in the mail. <laughs> Doug Branson helped us get ready for the post-All-Star break portion of our first season with a riveting Hornets discussion. In Dane Carbaugh's first appearance, he remarked that the Blazers could beat a team like the Clippers in the playoffs. Little did he know that's exactly what they would go on to do that postseason. Seth Rosenthal was guest 21, telling us all about the struggle of being a Knicks fan. Stan Van Gundy's unpredictable Pistons were the focus of our Dan Feldman interview. Here we are with him last week. Dan, we're really glad to have you on this episode, kind of an experimental one, celebrating our 100th episode. So it's really good to have guests we really appreciated having on. You've been on a couple times. It's, it's funny, for our 100th episode right now, I don't know if it's just a weird coincidence. It is August, but it's 95 degrees outside in <laughs> Los Angeles where I'm recording. 
You're in Detroit, right? I am. How's it going there? Uh, it's a little cooler than that, but we're still hanging on to the last days of summer. I was just talking to somebody who's in LA, and he was talking about a winter soccer for his daughter. And I'm thinking, wow, like how nice would that be? Uh, maybe not to wake up early to take her at all those soccer practices, but where you have that weather year round, I'm very jealous. Yeah. And I don't even know if it's honest to call it winter soccer. <laughs> I mean, technically speaking on the calendar, I guess. It, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's true. How's your off season been? It's hard to take a break from anything, right? With this year round nonsense that's going <laughs> craziness is probably a better word than nonsense it's just how do you get a break yeah there hasn't been one which is kind of nice like it's better for me for my job where all this stuff is happening and it hasn't been overwhelming since early july but where at least something's happening in previous years like you still got to write about something and you're really really digging to find anything Uh, my my favorite one uh or you know, was uh, one year like nothing was happening, but there was a video going around of an elephant dunking a basketball. So like that became something, you know, not that we had in-depth coverage on elephant basketball, but it's at least a little something to, to keep people entertained. Wow. So times have really changed, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, this is all substantive. Like is Kyrie Irving going to play for the Celtics, the Cavs, somebody else? This is real stuff that has a direct effect on the NBA's entire landscape. Yeah, nowadays in this basketball news climate, I don't think anyone would really care about an elephant dunking. I mean, it's cool to see, but uh, and we won't really talk about it much or at all because there's so much in flux right now. By the time this gets released, there's going to be a resolution (laughs) with the Irving Thomas thing. But I know so many fans, their ears are perked up just to figure out what is going to go on with this. I wanted to say, so the of the two episodes that you were on, the first two were 10 months apart, and now between your second and third appearance, it's a little bit less than eight. So I'm liking that trend. Maybe, maybe six months from now, we'll have you on again or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll just have to keep making it more and more regular. That'll be really good. Now Joshua is going to ask you just a little bit about the Detroit Pistons. Since we have you on, I think it'd be good to just get at least a question in about them. So earlier this offseason, the Celtics traded Avery Bradley and a 2019 second-round pick to Detroit for Marcus Morris. How do you think this trade changes the dynamics of the Pistons? So it allows them to stay what they were without paying the luxury tax. Because I think Avery Bradley is in a lot of ways stylistically similar to Contavious Caldwell-Pope. Uh, who's really the the other part of this transaction in conjunction essentially with getting Avery Bradley, the Pistons renounced Caldwell Pope, let him become an unrestricted free agent. And he went to the Lakers. He was going to be way more expensive than Bradley is because Bradley's locked into this contract signed during a, a previous environment of the NBA salary cap. And so you can get Bradley cheaper, allows you to stand with the luxury tax without doing other big moves Shedding somebody like John Lure, uh, you might have to give up a, a draft pick to get rid of Lure. Trying to do something crazy with Reggie Jackson, like you don't have to make those tough choices now. Next summer, Avery Bradley will be in line for a big raise, uh, maybe even more than what KCP got. He'll be an unrestricted free agent to start the offseason, unlike KCP. So there are going to be a lot of the same issues coming up next year, but that's next year's problem. So that was sort of the, the logic behind it for now. And what specifically does Bradley bring to the team? I think 
in the broadest terms, and I think it's important, competitiveness. He's a feisty guy. He plays hard. Uh, he's going to set a tone. And I think I think the Pistons hope that he's at the point in his career where he's comfortable with some of that leadership-type position. Uh, more specifically on the court, he's a very good defender of guards on and off the ball. He's not as switchable as you'd like. He's gotten way better as a rebounder, improving his overall ability. Uh, he can shoot pretty well, spotting up on three-pointers, has a little bit of an off-the-bounce game offensively. A fairly complete player, but a specialty is definitely defense. Cool. And just listening back to your two previous episodes, they were in March and January of the last two regular seasons, respectively. Inconsistency was the common theme with these Detroit Pistons when we had you on. To what extent, and this is the last question before we let you go, do you expect Bradley to solidify this roster and make a viewer more reliably know what they're going to get any given night so the hope might be that because he's this competitive guy that that's going to rub off on everybody and maybe it does to a certain degree kcp was was very quiet and just kind of went about his own business but i'm a pretty big believer that especially at this level like players take ownership for themselves so if reggie jackson is all of a sudden going to compete harder on defense and be in better shape that's because reggie jackson did the things necessary to do it. If Andre Drummond also gets in better shape and is competing with a more consistent energy level, that's because Andre Drummond did it. Uh, we don't need to credit Avery Bradley for it. So I don't think Avery Bradley is going to have these widespread effects, but he's a nice player who could come in at the same time that some younger players are figuring things out of how to compete more consistently themselves. I know this conversation was really quick, but it was just important for us to catch up with you and some of our other favorite guests and really thank you for all your contributions. It's been a lot of fun interacting with like-minded journalists and we really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Congrats on the 100th episode. It's a, a real exciting thing. Like It flies by that you guys I have know. got to this point already. Uh, and like you said, yeah, I, I'd love to come back on and uh, let's keep making it more and more often. Yeah, we really look forward to having you on again. Thank you. Jonathan Abrams appeared on a special episode. Aaron talked with him about his new book, Boys Among Men, on the prep-to-pro generation of NBA players. That episode and his book were released on the same day. In the interest of time, let's chronologically run through more of our first-time guests. Jared Wade, Pacers, March 17th, 2016. Tim Cato, Mavericks, March 24th. Then it was on to the Milwaukee Bucks on March 30th with Frank Madden. Next, we had Devin Carpertian, Nets, March 31st, 2016. Steve McPherson, Timberwolves, April 7th, 2016. On April 9th, Andy Larson talking about the Utah Jazz. Then it was Randy Harvey on the Houston Rockets, April 10th. On April 15th, we had Michael Levin on the 76ers. And then on April 20th, multi-time guest Nick Denning's first appearance helped us preview the intriguing Hornets Heat first round series. Experimenting with a new format, we had Nick and Josh Baumgard split time, each talking about one side of the matchup. Here's Nick again. Hey Nick, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. I want to first start off by saying congratulations. You're getting married next month. That should be exciting. That sounded really fake and not genuine, but it is. 
<laughs> no, no, thanks. I'm yeah, we're very excited. It's yeah, a couple of weeks away. You know, there's this there's stress. Everyone tells you there's stress and there's totally stress, but no, we're we're very excited and you know, just, just glad it's finally finally approaching. That definitely makes sense. And I think the stress is because it's so important in your life. And if you didn't care, then you wouldn't be stressed out. Right. So this is a lot less exciting, but still exciting for us. As we reach triple digits here in our number of episodes, it's approaching 100 degrees in Los Angeles outside. I'm the only one of the three of us that's actually in Los Angeles right now. But I thought I should mention that before getting started. That aside, so the second time you were on the show, the Hornets were looking good. They were 19 and 14. They were in the playoff hunt early in the season. We had the great Nick Denning on the show. Everything was right in the world, basically. And then it all went south really fast. The Hornets lost 19 of their next 24 or 7 of their next 8, if you want to shorten the time frame, and finished 36 and 46, did not make the playoffs. Besides us cursing you, me specifically, since it was a solo interview, what else went wrong for them that season? Big part of it was losing Cody Zeller. I think their record without him was 3-17, and 17, and their longest losing streak came during a period which he was out. And it's, you know, like he is a, he is a good player, and he's actually better than I think the average NBA fan gives him credit for, because his, his numbers aren't exactly eye-popping. But he is very good and he's important, but where things went wrong was when he was out, they didn't have a replacement. Roy Hibbert was supposed to be the guy, but then he was never healthy. Spencer Hawes really just wasn't good enough. And then they made a last ditch effort for Miles Plumley, and he got hurt. And, you know, we never really got a chance to see whether he would have worked either. And now he's gone. So that was a big thing. But they also, for the first time under Steve Clifford last season, finished outside the top 10 in defensive efficiency. And a lot of that had to do with just just the sheer amount of three pointers they allowed. They they were I think they weren't last. They were second to last, but I believe they were last in the league in in attempts made or, or attempts and made three pointers. It was just no matter the night, no matter the team, they got hot from, from three point line, and that just you know it, it snowballed on on itself. And I know I'm the one who brought it up, but one thing I want to say in my defense that losing seven of eight games stretch. They played Cleveland, San Antonio, Houston, and Boston, and a ton of those were games on the road. So I think on the NBA beat and the NBA schedule probably combined to play a role, but <laughs> the 19 losses in 24 games, that's just not going to get it done. And hopefully they can get back to the playoffs this season. That's that's tough. Yeah, I mean, and they, they kind of have, they actually give themselves a little bit tougher schedule just by request. They want more marquee games on the weekends. And that sometimes means having to pack a lot of tough matchups together. It's it's partly just kind of the fan base. They're just more generally going to come out on the weekends than they are during the week. And so because of that, you get those stretches like you just mentioned, where they just seem to play so many good teams back to back. And a lot of those can be on the road. And and so they don't do any themselves favors. But I don't think anyone on that team would make an excuse about the schedule. I mean, it's just it is what it is. And they did actually blow a lot of games late in the fourth quarter. I think they lost maybe nine or 10 very, very close games last season. So that didn't help either. Looking back even further, the first time you were on our show, it was during the opening round playoff series of 2016. The Heat were playing the Hornets. And we spoke to you right after their 
big game one loss. The Heat blew out Charlotte in that first game. You claimed on our show that if the Hornets were able to steal a game two, the series could go in any direction despite that big loss. Charlotte ended up losing game two, but the series still went to game seven. Ultimately, the Heat advanced. But are there any memories that stick out for you from that series? Yeah, no, the game six was huge. I mean, you know, because I've... I've followed this team since the Bobcats days, you know, they've made the playoffs before, but it was just, you know, they were swept each time that I'd seen them. So yeah, when they, when they won game six and suddenly, no, not a game six, they won game five, excuse me. They won game five. So they had, or maybe I'm getting this wrong. I can't remember. They had, they had a three, two series lead. So yeah, it was game five. And then suddenly I'm sitting here, they're going, they've got a chance to win this thing in game six at home. That was incredibly exciting. I mean, I, we had worked very hard that season with the whole at the hive team. You know, we didn't have a whole lot of expectations for them in the playoffs for them to actually have a chance to win. The series was something we really hadn't seriously prepared for. And obviously they blew it. They, they, they lost game six and they lost game seven, but that still resonates just like the feeling of realizing how close they were to, to advancing. And I think back on what it would have meant if they had won that series, like how it would have changed the the perception of the team, you know, what it, whether it would have changed anything last season, things like that, I think can have lasting effects that you don't really think about beyond just basketball. Right. So yeah, I think it definitely has an impact. So many trades this off season for the Hornets, obviously the biggest trade was acquiring Dwight Howard. What are the expectations for him and for the team Last year, they only won 36. They went down 12 wins from the previous year. So how's Dwight Howard going to help? Well, for one, the, the depth is a big thing. You're replacing Miles Plumlee um, with Dwight Howard. That's a, that's a huge upgrade regardless of you know the potential baggage that comes with him. I know that there are a lot of people, especially those who have covered Dwight at other stops, who you know just don't see this ending well. But I mean, even though he's 31, he's not an all-star anymore. He's going to probably give them a double-double in points and rebounds. He's going to add the serious serious size and defensive presence, something that they haven't really had in a long time, um, at least on the defensive end. So I think in an ideal situation, you know, him and Zeller kind of play an equal amount of minutes because I think they can really help each other and really keep each other not only um, efficient but you know healthy. I think it would probably benefit Dwight to not have to have such a huge amount of minutes. But I think ideally he he makes them a lot better, especially in at the center position. It should be interesting to see how he fits in. Thanks again, Nick, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on as always. Yeah, thank you. Remember that on the NBA beat curse we just alluded to that afflicted the Hornets after Nick's second appearance? They aren't the only team we've jinxed over the course of our run. After John Corrales talked Celtics with us, Boston dropped six of its next seven games, including its next two against the lowly Lakers and Nets. Directly following the first time the Pelicans were featured on our show with Mason Ginsburg, they lost their next five games, including two overtime losses, leading to an 0-8 start to the season. Heading into our interview with Ashish Matter, the Bulls had started the season 10-6. and He spoke with us. Then they proceeded to go 3-7 and seven over their next 10. In the Clippers' second game after our interview with Andrew Hahn, Chris Paul sprained his thumb, which led to a 2-7 and seven stretch for the team. 
Of course, sometimes fortune works in the other direction as well. After we spoke with Justin Fadre, the Nuggets won three of their next four games, including a big win over the vaunted Warriors. And following our interview with Randy Harvey, sports editor of the Houston Chronicle, the Rockets won their last three games of the season to sneak into the 2016 playoffs with the eighth seed. Continuing our playoff coverage, Joe Cacharo and Ben Gibson helped us tackle the Raptors-Pacers opening round series. Then, Jacob Rosen joined Lang Whitaker to contribute to a Hawks-Cavaliers matchup show. Later that postseason, in advance of Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals between the Thunder and Warriors, we brought on Marina Mangiaracina. Then, about a month later, it was Sam Vecini who helped us review the 2016 NBA Draft. After an off-season break, we previewed the 2016-17 season with James Herbert on October 19th. Then we brought on Mason Ginsburg for the Pelicans, Jake Fisher for the 76ers, and Patrick Fanelon on the Minnesota Timberwolves. We had a fun and unique show with Adina Jones, then Adina Andrews, where we discussed the Knicks and her life-changing trip to Cuba. Here's our chat with her, followed by my favorite clip from that first appearance. Welcome back to the show, Adina. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Excited. Of course. And you just got married recently. Our very first guest back in October 2015, Alex Kennedy, he got married in June. Nick Denning, who's been a multi-time guest on the show, he's getting married in a couple weeks. So it seems like everyone's getting married. Yeah, it's around that time. Please address me. Uh, as Adina Jones, a.k.a. AJ. That is now my new name. So um, I'm happy to be a married woman. Yeah, we're going to have to say formerly Adina Andrews because (laughs) some people who know our podcast will only know you as that. But I'd love to hear more about your wedding if you'd like to share some details. Yeah, so it was probably the best party of my life. I had it in Ocho Rios, Jamaica on a Sandals all-inclusive resort. And, uh, you know, Chad and I are both from Brooklyn. So our first dance was Mary J. Blige and Method Man's You're All I Need to Get By. Uh-huh. It, was, it was hot. That's, that was our intro song. I'm trying to think what else. Uh, I had my dad there. It was just an all around good time. Uh, my dad and my mom. So it's good times. Sounds amazing. And like you were able to travel again. Yeah. Um, and I'm, my family's originally from Jamaica. So it was nice to go back to the country that my family immigrated from to have my wedding. When was the last time that you were in Jamaica? Uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> so it, it was, uh, it was a, and my grandmother, who's the one who immigrated, it was, uh, she passed away. So it was nice to pay homage to her in that sense. Yeah, that sounds great. So congratulations on that. Other than that, though, how's your summer been so far? Summer's been great. Uh, I ran a half marathon May 20th. Uh, The wedding was July 17th. Just been trying to stay in shape and, um, you know, just trying to stay in shape and cultivate the beginnings of married life. And work-wise, you know, summer's sometimes slow, but we're gearing up for, you know, college football, the NFL right now. So we're back in the swing of things. Yeah. And then also the NBA never sleeps. All this craziness every week up until recently with the Kyrie Irving as it's Thomas. Uh, The NBA season, off season is more entertaining than some other seasons. So um, I'm all for it. I'm here for it. Yeah, I completely agree about that. And I wanted to mention this. 
Uh, so the time you were on our show was a couple weeks after the presidential election in the United mm-hmm. States, and it was a great opportunity for us to catch up with you about your trip to Cuba. Mm-hmm. I was listening to it last night, and I just want to say I really appreciate you for coming on. That was one of my favorite episodes, mm-hmm. and my pleasure. I just enjoyed so much getting into the kind of academic mode no longer being a student of of just sitting down and doing a lot of research into the topic, learning things I never knew, and getting your firsthand account of that. So I really did appreciate it. It it stands out among our episodes as a very unique one, I think. Oh, well, I'm I'm happy to make my mark on this show. Happy you guys have me. Yeah, I was really interested to hear about that unique experience from you, too. Another type of unique experience, I think, was following the Knicks last season. It seemed like every single week, sometimes every single day, there is new news coming out, Some something going on. There's like the whole Charlie Rosen saga. There's Jackson feuding with Mello, Jackson feuding with Kristaps, players not necessarily getting along with Horncheck, the Charles Oakley stuff. As a fan of the Knicks, and more generally as just someone who follows the team closely, how is following that season, or is that just sort of a day in the life of a typical New York sports fan? Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily cover the Knicks. You know, we cover every everything that's out there in sports. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a Knicks season if there's not drama. So they're always entertaining. They always provide content. And being a Knicks fan for the faint of heart. That's definitely true. It's not a next season without drama. Do you think we've finally gotten to the point where they're ready to trade Carmelo Anthony this offseason, especially now that no, Phil Jackson is not gone? not at all. Um, we're still going to be dealing with this for the next year, so be ready. I saw some Cubans, they were doing um, stepping, and I'm part of a historically Black sorority, and one of our traditions is we step. We use, it's called, it's like body percussion. And they were doing like the same exact steps that I learned at USC in college. And it just makes you feel more connected. It makes you feel not so lost in this world and not so without culture. So it was, it was humbling and it was enlightening to see that kind of stuff. And to see that like, I look just like a lot of them. A lot of times my mom, my mom was mistaken for a Cuban um, that, you know, and Cubans come in all shapes, sizes and colors too. But, uh, you know, they look like they could live down the block and be my uncle. That kind of stuff was great. Ashish Mater on the Bulls was our next show, followed by a special episode on Harrison Barnes with Jason Gallagher and Andy Liu on December 3rd. Next up, we had Morgan Reagan talk about the Kings with us. Following that, it was all that Amar on the Utah Jazz. Then we had our first and only so far D-League episode, now the G-League, with Chris Reichert. After a little bit of a break, we got right back on the horse with Andrew Hahn, who discussed the Los Angeles Clippers. Next, Jeff Garcia on the San Antonio Spurs. Following him was K.L. Chenard on the Hawks, and then after him was Mike Pina about the Celtics. We caught up with Mike Pina here. Hey, Michael, welcome back to the show. It's always great having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. A lot of big things happening in Celtics land right now. Currently, as of recording time, the big news of last week, the trade involving Isaiah Thomas and Kyrie Irving, 
is in a bit of limbo right now. After the Cavs physical of Isaiah Thomas, they came back asking for more compensation because his hip issue was a little bit more pronounced than they had thought. I guess considering both possible outcomes of that situation, how do you think it will affect the team if that trade hypothetically does go through, either with or without further compensation from the Celtics? And also, if the Cavaliers do decide to void the trade, what would be the ramifications for the Celtics then? Well, I guess I'll start with the second part. If the trade is voided, I mean, it would be pretty significant, I think, for the Celtics. I mean, they get to keep the Brooklyn pick and keep Jay Crowder and Zizic and Isaiah. But, you know, recent reports regarding Isaiah's hip and the condition that it's in and, and whether or not he'll be able to start on opening night are very bleak. So if you're the Celtics and you have all these high expectations to at least get to the Eastern Conference Finals with Gordon Hayward now on board as well, it stands to be very difficult. I mean, Isaiah Thomas, his impact last season was obviously humongous, uh, but no one really knows how he will perform You know, whenever he's healthy enough to get back and whether or not this injury will linger once he does return to the court, because it seems like it might be a little bit more serious than originally projected. So even though the East is pretty bad, you know, they would miss him because, you know, having Terry Rozier and Marcus Smart running the point on a full-time basis, even with uh, Hayward's playmaking ability, and, you know, the Celtics could run their offense a little bit through Al Horford even, but Isaiah would be missed. His scoring or at least a point guard, Isaiah or Kyrie, that level of scoring, I think, would be greatly missed. Now, if the trade does go through, you know, they get Kyrie. And he is, in my opinion, not a top 10 player right now. Context obviously matters a great deal. And he spent the last three seasons playing beside LeBron James in an obviously unique situation where... Uh, I think he would be the primary option on just about any other team he would play for had he not been beside, you know, one of the best players of all time. So you bring him in and it'll be really interesting to see how he fits beside Hayward and Horford and most importantly within Brad Stevens' system, which is very altruistic and, you know, pass happy. They didn't really have any system like that. In Cleveland, it was very ISO heavy. LeBron James just kind of dictated the means on every possession when they were both on the floor. So, you know, those adjustments for the Celtics and for Kyrie will be very intriguing to follow. But at the end of the day, I think the talent upgrade going from what they had last season with Kelly Olenek and some of the other players that they lost, Avery Bradley, to Kyrie and Gordon Hayward and Marcus Morris, you know, Jason Tatum's in the fold, Jalen Brown's a year older. I think at the end of the day, in a playoff series, they're much harder to guard. They're much more dangerous on the offensive end. And I think their ceiling rises quite a bit. But during the regular season, I think there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment period, as I talked about before. And I don't know. I saw recently that their over-under was, I believe, 56 and a half wins, which is absurd. <laughs> that's kind of absurd to me. I, I think betting the under, you'd be a smart person to bet the under on that just because as bad as the East is, I think the Celtics could struggle a little bit with regards to their depth and their youth and, you know, implementing these new pieces. 
It's been a busy offseason for Danny Ainge. What's it been like to see him finally pulling the trigger on big moves instead of stockpiling assets for the future? He was being pretty patient before, and he was getting a lot of flack for that. Yeah, I mean, I was you know, on the record throughout the past couple of years with patience. I thought it made a lot of sense to hold on to the Brooklyn picks, given how terrible that team is and will continue to be. The Celtics did a tremendous job of carving out max cap space, and I think that they, their strategy throughout last season particularly was to you know ride the wave that they had going with Isaiah, who was ascending to eventually become a second team All NBA guard. You know they just signed Al Horford. So they had cap space. They were already, you know, a first or second seed, a dangerous team. So signing Gordon Hayward was kind of always the move. And if you were to trade the Brooklyn pick during the season for a Jimmy Butler or a Paul George, I think it would have made acquiring Hayward in free agency all the more difficult. Granted, the salary cap dropped a little bit lower than they expected, and they had to give up Avery Bradley in a trade. But I thought that the general strategy here made a lot of sense. They certainly cashed in with the trade for Kyrie, and I believe that they would have been way more aggressive in attempting to cash in in a trade for either Paul George or Butler, both guys who were traded before free agency began uh, and before that the Celtics knew that they had Gordon Hayward signed. But I guess we'll never know the answer to that. But it made sense to me for them to wait it out. And we don't know, again, how good Kyrie will be in Boston. But he's only 25 years old. I think his timeline matches up very well with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart. You know, Gordon Hayward isn't exactly an old guy. I think he's 27. So as those younger pieces develop, I think they're in a really good position to be the best team in the Eastern Conference for a very long time, particularly with LeBron James getting older and potentially leaving the Eastern Conference. And just the last question for you, Michael, I realize depending on the outcome of the Kyrie Irving trade, your answer may change, but Help us gauge realistic expectations for Jalen Brown going into his second season and Jason Tatum as a rookie. Yeah, so both had, you know, modestly impressive summer league performances. Jason Tatum particularly, his offensive skill set was very impressive in Las Vegas and in Utah. You know, personally, I'm not expecting a lot out of him in his first year. I think he has a lot to learn about. And I mean, we talked about Kyrie's adjustment into Brad Stevens' system, and Jason Tatum plays basketball a similar way. He's kind of an ISO specialist who, uh, you know, takes very difficult shots, and he has a the ability to make them tough, contested pull up, long twos, and we all know that those are inefficient looks. And Brad Stevens kind of frowns upon that type of shot. So it'll be on Tatum to kind of adjust his game and mold it into the system. I'm not really expecting him to be, you know, a scoring presence off the bench in his first year. I think they're more high on his his athleticism and his ability to use length and quickness and size on the defensive end. So, yeah, my expectations for Tatum are pretty low in year one. 
with regards to Jalen. I go back and forth. I think coming off of the rookie year he had, it was a very difficult spot for anybody that age and of that experience level to kind of go onto a veteran team and, you know, instead of having a big role, a role that he's probably been familiar with for a majority of his life, he had to basically come off the bench, not even average 20 minutes a game, not getting opportunities to score in ways that he's familiar with. So he had to adjust and I thought he did an okay job. You know, he's still extremely young, even though he had moments in the playoffs and down the stretch of the regular season where, you know, he was guarding LeBron James straight up and doing a, a decent job. <laughs> I wasn't shutting down LeBron or anything like that. But I think people might be expecting a little bit too much from Jalen in just his second season. I, I think he will be a starter on this team because of the moves that they made and how they've kind of shaken it up, assuming that the trade goes through. I think he'll start at the two. They really like his defensive versatility still. He's probably one of the five most athletic players in the entire league. So he'll use that to his benefit. But they really need him to be more disciplined on the defensive end. They need him to understand that he still is not, you know, the first, second, or third option on the offensive end. And if he can continue to buy in and kind of take it slow and be patient, I think he'll have a productive season. But I mean, we're not expecting either of these guys to, you know, make an all-star team right away. Yeah, it can be a little misleading when a guy like him dominates summer league. You just have to take the context into consideration. And he's still just turning 21 as the season starts. But I know we've been saying this a lot throughout this entire episode. We would not be even close to where we are now without amazing guests like you. So I just want to thank you again for all your contributions. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Always happy to come on. Love talking basketball with you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ahead of All-Star Weekend, we talked with Casey Sager, the daughter of the late, great Craig Sager, who referred to All-Star Weekend as his Christmas. So that was extra special. The following week, we had Dan Devine on to help us sort through the trade deadline and everything going on around that. After him, it was fellow UC Davis alum, Darius Soriano on the Lakers. Next, Justin Rowan came on to talk about the Cavs. Then we brought on Blake Murphy to discuss the Raptors and Salman Ali to talk about the Rockets. Jovan Buha, another Trojan, talked about the Clippers with us. And the Clippers-Jazz series was still going on two weeks later when we caught up with Zach Harper, who gave the Jazz's perspective on things. We covered the Wizards semifinal series with the Celtics on a double episode featuring Chase Hughes and Michael Pina. Then we looked at the Spurs playoff run with Paul Garcia and got a general playoff overview from Tass Mellis of the starters. Only nine more guests to go, but first, here's our conversation with Chris Axman the man who runs our podcast network. We still need to have him on as an actual guest, but this will have to do for now. We are joined now by CEO and founder of the Almighty Baller Network, Chris Axman. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I'm not sure my title's CEO. I like that. I like the sound of it, though. Definitely founder. Yeah, I'll, I'll grant you that title for now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and thanks for having me on. No the problem. Big 100. Yep. Our show has been a part of the Almighty Baller Network since I think about late March of 2017. 
we've had a lot of fun being part of a network. We've gotten a lot out of it. For the listeners who aren't familiar with the network, can you just talk a little bit about generally about the network and what your philosophy has been in running and building it? Yeah, yeah, sure. I guess, you know, to start, it was founded, it was actually just, a, it was a blog. I started it, I was bartending, and I started it just to sort of put my dumb basketball thoughts on it. And then I pivoted once I started a podcast and figured out that no one was reading my articles and people were listening to my podcasts. And then eventually, as I, you know, sort of delved more into podcasting, learned how to do it, there was this day I was listening to True Hoop, and Zach Harper, who you've had on your show, said something really funny, and I started laughing. And then when I was done laughing, I was like, I'll never be as funny as this guy. That's sort of when I decided to go in a particular direction. If you listen to my show, Almighty Ballin', uh, I get a little bit more in-depth into the X's and O's. I'd like to think that you know Zach Lowe is sort of the model I'm going for, because I feel like I can be good at that. And what I've tried to do with the network is... I can't be as funny as, as this guy, but you know the Super Hoopers, they can be you know one of the top five funniest NBA shows. Brickhouse, they can do it. On the NBA beat, as far as interview shows, they're top five. They do it better than I can. So I've just tried to get basketball talent, bring them all together, mutually you know, utilize and share each other's skills, and uh, just sort of bring the NBA as far as we can take it. That's a really good answer. I wanted to ask just a little bit more about the podcasts you contribute to. Last night, I was listening a little to the Bod Pod. So basically, is that like a panel show where you have some of your favorite guys, people that you like to talk basketball with from the network and just talk about things? Yeah, pretty much. So Bod Pod is sort of an offshoot of Almighty Ballin'. You know, I, I use Almighty Ballin as a chance to bring on guests uh, a lot like yours, but it's, you know, one-on-one -on -one and we delve into, you know, more flat earth style basketball stuff. Like we're crazy. Bod Pod though, it's the same group of us. It's uh, Dave DeFore, also part of the network on the NBA with Coach Dave, James Hollis at Snotty Drippin, of course. It's uh, Adam Mares from Denver Stiffs and Dan Morang from Blazer's Edge. That is always the same group of people. It's just sort of a chance for us to all get together and, you know, basically talk about what we were already texting about. So we've had a lot of people from the network on our show. Some of them we had on before we were part of the network, Andy Larson, Justin Rowan, and we've had even more on lately and it's been really helpful. We had a draft episode right before where we had Sean Darenthal and Javier Pesquera and that was cool. We split it up into a half hour apiece with those two guys. And they just know so episode. much. Thanks a lot. They know so much about the draft. They follow the prospects year round. And it's just a pleasure to be speaking with people who are such good experts on topics that no matter how much research we do, and we do a lot of research to prepare for the show, but we're not going to have the knowledge and expertise that they have. Basically, what I'm getting at is the network being a part of it has allowed us to share time with all these guys who contribute so much and help us get to where we, we've been so far and where we're trying to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm good with tooting my own horn because really I'm tooting everyone's horns that are involved with the network. 
But I do think that, you know, Javier Pascara, you know, his co-host over at What's on Draft, Coles Wicker, you know, super draft expert, Mark Whittington, also same thing. Really, we've got some super talented people and it's been, I mean, I would say it's been thrilling, like watching it all come together. It, it's, I couldn't have expected anything better. You know, it was definitely a lot of hard work. I'm not, you know, it's, it's not one of those things where it just happened overnight. I've really gotten to watch it grow brick by brick, but that's been like an incredibly rewarding process. And, you know, I was telling you before we went on air here, I've really appreciated watching on the NBA beat, utilize the network to its fullest extent in that regard, because really, you know, the bottom line with the network, as much as, you know, their shared resources, you know, we're trying to make some scratch here going into the next NBA season, graphic design on a fundamental level, though, the network is a network of people. And uh, it's been great listening to your show and to you guys just really utilize that to the fullest extent. And, um, you know, I've just really appreciated it as someone who's you're really trying to foster that community. I think that you've really bought into it. And that's been great. Thank you. We really appreciate that. And before I kick it over to Lauren, I just wanted to add, we had Keith Smith on also. He knows so much about the CBA and salary cap and, and just basketball in general. Joe Morgan as well. He did a really great scout school episode with Lauren and, and also talked about the Sacramento Kings. Salman Ali too, all about the Rockets. So yeah, like I said, we've just enjoyed talking with all these guys throughout the network and we want to continue to do that. But now we want to know a little bit more about the future direction of it. So I'll stop talking now and go to Lauren. Yeah, so for the rest of this episode, we've been mainly talking about, you know, giving a bit of a retrospective on the history of our podcast. We've had on so many of our favorite former guests, talking about our experience with them, how they've helped us grow and get to the place that we are right now. I guess just in terms of the network, what would you say are your goals, both in the immediate future and further out on the horizon, if you know? You know, really next season, I've sort of approached this whole network building process. It's something that I felt like needed to happen quickly, but couldn't be random. It needed to be really deliberate and compartmentalized. So if you track where we've come from and chart it into the future, you know, season one, we really built a great inventory of shows this off season, you know, while we were supposed to not have tons of basketball to talk about, but you know, Kyrie Irving and Jimmy Butler and all sorts of shenanigans, there ended up being plenty of basketball to talk about. But this summer, we really tried to build this, you know, financial infrastructure, which we're going to use going into next season and beyond to basically go door to door. You know, we've got this great product. We're going to knock on doors. We're going to say, hey, have you heard on the NBA beat? You know, like, have, have you listened to uh, Almighty Ball and NBA show? Have you listened to what's on draft? Because if you haven't, maybe you should. And just find different ways to promote and improve the existing network that we have that I just really think, you know, we have come so far and really polished our presentation, polished our content to the extent that I'm proud of it. I'm ready and willing to say, here, what we have to offer is just as good or better than anything else out there. So, you know, you should take this and, uh, you know, just really enjoy it and interact with it. And so basically, next season is just going to be all about that. It's going to be about spreading the word, 
you know, it's going to be about firmly establishing ourselves. you know, continuing to uh, polish the edges, you know, really make our content, you know, shine as much as it possibly can. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. We're excited to be on this journey with you. And thank you for everything you've done and continue to do for the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. No, we're we're thrilled to continue walking down and going into the future. I'll let you guys know what phase four is going to look like, but I haven't quite gotten there yet. I'm excited to enter next NBA season, though. In advance of the 2017 finals, we heard from Jim Park, our rare non-Andy Liu Warriors guest. With so much downtime between series, we were also able to get a finals preview from Cleveland's perspective from Brendan Bowers. Then on a special pre-draft episode, we heard from both Sean Darenthal and Javier Pesquera. Keith Smith dominated our off-season general NBA coverage, doing his best to anticipate all the moves likely to be on the horizon. So much player movement. Then from Las Vegas, Joe Morgan graced us with his presence, talking one-on-one with Lauren about the Sacramento Kings and scout school. We then caught up with Tim Fakeless, who discussed one of the most intriguing teams this offseason, the Minnesota Timberwolves. Next up in our summer coverage was our talk with Sue Favor on our first ever WNBA episode. And then finally, on episode 99, we caught up with Oliver Maroney, who talked about the Big Three League with us. Thanks for going on this journey with us. Whether you're a listener, a guest, someone who's provided us advice or feedback, or just a supporter of what we're doing. It means so much. And again, specifically with regard to our guests, as a guest-centric interview podcast, without them, we would not be able to do our show. On another note, our Rockets guests, Randy Harvey and Salman Ali, have reported back to us that they're doing well. Salman fortunately lives in an area that wasn't so hard hit. There was flooding, but none of the water found its way into his home. Randy Harvey was in Los Angeles as the hurricane that bears his name was on its way to Houston. He couldn't get back to the city, but used the opportunity to cover UCLA football's historic comeback victory over Texas A&M for the Houston Chronicle. Special thanks to our 10 guests who came on for this landmark episode. We are currently in the planning stage for our 2017-18 coverage, but we promise to deliver many more insightful, illuminating interviews. Talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening.